Hi, I'm Gary Vincent, founder of the American Classic Arcade Museum, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. This is the Ted Dabney Experience, a podcast project that opens little windows into the history of coin-op video gaming, with a particular focus on the proverbial golden age. I'm Richard May. This is Tony Temple. Hello. And Paul Drury. Hello. And for this episode, we're speaking with a gentleman who introduced himself at the top of the show, Mr. Gary Vincent. Gary is a founder and curator of ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum, located within the world-famous Funspot Family Amusement Centre in Weirs Beach, New Hampshire. Before we start, and for the uninitiated, it's important to note that ACAM is not a trendy retro arcade, that Gary has played a pivotal role in classic arcade gaming since the early 80s, and that his endeavours have never been more relevant to both the hobby as some of you know its day, and the preservation and advocacy of this particular slice of modern Americana. Gary, you started at Funspot as a summer job in 1981 and, and never left. When exactly are you going to get a proper job? <laughs> Wow, it, it, it's really hard to tell. I, I really don't know. I started here August 20th, 1981, and I enjoyed it so much, I just stayed. What are your abiding memories of that first summer working there? The thing that I find interesting now when I look back on that time is games were coming in the door that are brand new, but now, 39 years later, and they are antiques in the museum. And it was a really unique time if you were in arcades back in the early 80s, because as much as I try to recreate that feeling inside of ACAM, being there in the actual time was just really, really enjoyable. Saying that you started there as a summer job implies that you were in education. Dare we ask how old you were when you started there? I was 19. So what, what were you studying? I was studying chemical engineering. Have you found that's been useful uh, in your work in the arcade industry at all? Not at all. <laughs> and it's funny because at that time there were two big chemical plants, each of which experienced some sort of explosion within the same year of each other. <laughs> So when the opportunity came to do something different, I thought, well, you know, probably a minimal chance of getting blown up at this job. Arcade saved your life. Yeah. It's good to hear. Um, I'm interested because, of course, Funspot had been going since the early 1950s. So, Gary, did you visit Funspot as a child? I didn't visit. Well, yeah, actually, I did because I didn't live in New Hampshire, but our family used to come here for summer vacation. And I did come here a couple of times as a kid. There used to be uh, two different outdoor parks here. One was uh, Storybook Forest, and the other one was Chief Red Dawn's Indian Village, <laughs> which was a recreation of Native American dwellings and stuff. I've got some old pictures somewhere of me as a kid here. Of course, it has a long history before video games arrived. Can you recall the first time you actually saw one of these newfangled arcade machines, whether it was at Funspot or somewhere else? My experience with arcades was mostly here in the Weirs Beach area. 
either at Fun Spot or down on the beach itself. I do remember one of the first ones that I played was uh, Space War Cinematronics. Really? Yeah. So that was at Weir's Beach. Of course, there's more than one arcade in that part of New Hampshire. Yes. Of course, we can't talk about Fun Spot without mentioning the Lawton family. Yes. And particularly the brothers, John and Bob. So can you, uh, can you recall, you know, the first time you met them in that, uh, in that summer when you started there? I actually had met them a few years prior. Uh, it was probably the summer of 79. I met Bob and then his brother, John. And it was, you know, I got to know them as a customer. And then uh, summer of 81 is when I started to work here. Are they good people to work for? Oh, yeah, they're great. Uh, I miss John. He passed away in 2003. Um, so that, that was a loss for us here because just such a, uh, a very, a very intelligent and, and very quiet man, uh, unless you got him riled up and then, uh, watch out because, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. And Bob's a great guy. He still comes in. And I think this, this closure time has been a little bit hard on him because he's had such a routine since basically 1952 and to suddenly have that disrupted. So he's still, apart from now when the arcades close, he still comes in and opens up every day despite being in his, is it 80s now? He just turned 89 in March. Wow. I hope I'm still going to the arcade when I'm that age. Gary, you mentioned um, the early days at Funspot. I wonder if, if we could just explore the business model of the arcade, thinking specifically about video arcade machines. How did a... Atari asteroids roll off the plant in California and end up in Weir's Beach? Um, when you're talking about a game, say Asteroids, for example, it would leave the, the factory and then would go to a distributorship. Back in the day when arcades were really in their, their heyday, certain distributors carried certain brands and others couldn't. So there were two main places that we bought games from. One was Bally Northeast and the other one was Rowe, New England. And you would, you know, either the Lawtons would go to a game show in Chicago and pick out what they wanted, or your salesman would come up and visit you and say, hey, you know, here's what we got coming out. This is what was big at the show and going to be popular. And then you would place your order. And then a few weeks later, games would arrive. And at one point, I remember there were four Asteroids machines here side by side. It was just so popular. Wow. And presumably each of those cogs in the wheel makes a margin. So the distributor buys from Atari, sells to you guys at a profit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a model where there was like a revenue share where the distributor would sell, would place a machine in an arcade and then split the takings? Usually the distributors didn't do the revenue share. That was usually like a local operator. In fact, in the early days uh, when Bob first opened Funspot in 52, he owned his own machines up until the late 70s or so. And one day a gentleman, uh, Freddie Ferretra, came in from Ferretra Games and Music. They were a, an operator here in New Hampshire. They would be the people you would see, like you'd pull into a rest area and there'd be a vending machine or someplace would have a game or two, like a, the entrance of a supermarket. And it would be a local operator doing that. So he came in and he said to Bob, at that time, Bob only had old electromechanical games. He didn't have any video games. And I remember Bob telling me this story and he came in and he said, oh, let me do something with all of this junk. I'll bring you some video games and you'll make some real money. 
and Bob remembered him bringing in the original tank and then a Seawolf. And Bob said the, the, the one tank video game was taking in more money than all of his old electromechanicals combined. So he knew then that this was the route to go. But back in those days, Funspot was only open in the summer. So there was no winter business up here because there really wasn't enough drive for it. So the, uh, it worked out well for Etra because he had games apparently in schools and colleges, and then they'd be out for the summer and he'd take those games and he'd bring them here. For several years, Bob did that and then opened up um, a lot of different locations. There were multiple fun spots in the early 1980s and might've been 84. Bob said, we got to own our own games. We can't keep doing a revenue share. We're handing half the money out the door for doing all the work. Mm -hmm. So they made a deal and purchased all the games. And then from then on, Funspot owned their own games. And this sort of light bulb moment of a video game is, is taking more than the existing electromechanical games. Um, did that mean that you could literally just buy a machine, put it on the floor, and over a, a rather short period of time, it would pay for itself? Was that an absolute guarantee then? You know, it's funny. Back when video games were new, and we used to joke around, if it had a, a, you know, a monitor screen and a coin door, it would make money. And for, for several years, it was like that. And then everything kind of hit a wall when, you know, players became a little more discretionary and suddenly you couldn't just put a monitor in a box and throw it on a floor and people would play it. And I wonder as well, Gary, what kind of challenges the arrival of video games created for arcade operators like um, the Lawtons, just in terms of maintenance and understanding how these things worked when presumably, inevitably, they all started breaking down? Yeah, that was a big change because most of the electromechanical games, you know, there, there, there was a completely different mindset for repairing those than there was for video games. And Bob's nephew, Randy, who is still here, um, started to learn electronic repair because now suddenly he was presented with a completely different operating system than the old games. Gary, a lot of us skip school to go to arcades, but um, I understand that you skip the arcade to actually go to school. Oh, yes. Uh, Randy Fromm ran the Randy Fromm Arcade School. And the first time I went to that was in January of 1983. It was at a Holiday Inn down in Orlando, Florida. And what they would do is have a local operator bring in some games so that we could actually experiment on them. And it was a one week long class. If I remember, it ran Monday through Saturday. So it was six days, about eight hours each day. So it was pretty uh, intense. Randy would, you know, tell you enough information so that you could repair things, but didn't get into a lot of theory because like he said, you can fix things or you can learn about exactly how they work but what is more important to you the getting the game going or that you can sit down and explain the whole thing to your friends so he you know would show us okay here's a power supply out of this game this is what commonly goes wrong with it and this is what you'll see so here's how to test it here's how to replace the parts and that's what we did and, and how to pull monitor chassis out of monitors and discharge them safely and you know it, it was really a great course and he uh, offered a second part and he only did it one time to the best of my knowledge and that was in April of 1984 and I flew out to Randy's shop out in San Diego California and it was another you know six day long class and there was only about a dozen of us I think I've posted that picture somewhere 
us all standing outside of Randy's old shop, which I think has long since been torn down. There's probably a Walmart there or something. So, so you're you're an alumni, uh, a very exclusive band of alumni of that school. Yeah. Um, the fact that you're actually going somewhere to study about arcade machine maintenance did that sort of make you think? You know, this is a profession that I'm in. Oh yeah, you know that you had this dedicated quick course. And Randy's still doing them. He's gotten into slot machine repair now, but it's just, you know, it just said, hey, this is a booming industry. And just look at how many arcades there were and how many games there were. You mentioned it was a booming industry, and it certainly was when you attended those classes in 83. But as we went into 84, we often read about the great video game crash. How did you experience that? Did you notice this huge apparent collapse? Funny that you bring that up because everybody's got a date, you know, 83, 84, whatever. But we didn't notice it here in New Hampshire until about 1990. So it pretty much was usually trends. They'll start on the West Coast and move their way to the East. And I think when trends die out, they do the same thing. What I believe set us apart from everyone else is we had a variety of things here to do. There wasn't just video games. And I remember being there and seeing them back in the day. If there was, you know, 400 square feet to rent on Main Street anywhere, somebody would rent it and put in 25 video games and they made money, but they had nothing else to offer. They had no food, no place to sit down, no other entertainment other than video games. And I think they were the first ones that took the hit when the market turned. And I think that's what insulated us from that crash until I very distinctly remember 1990. It was just like the rug got pulled out from under us. We often hear stories, you know, when the crash occurred, many arcade owners went out of business and many of these machines were either smashed up or thrown into warehouses for idiots like me to discover 30 years later. <laughs> but it sort of sounds like a decision was made that you weren't going to ditch these machines. Uh, over the years, Funspy got rid of a lot of games. Oh, really? Uh yeah, okay. a couple hundred. And I remember there was a local operator who put games out in like restaurants and such. Used to buy games from Funspot 50, 60 at a whack. And then new things would come in, they'd spread things out. And there was a lot of games that I remember from over the years that just aren't here anymore. And I have never seen another one again. Mm. And when you were talking about finding these in warehouses, when the arcade industry crashed, what became a problem was for people such as root operators. They've got, you know, John Doe opened up an arcade and I've got 40 video games in his building. And another guy, I've got 30 games there. I've got 50 games here. There's a, an arcade somewhere else I've got 100 games in and all these places closed. Now the problem is, what do you do with hundreds of machines? And you know from being a collector that they are large and they're heavy. So that's why I think a lot of them ended up being junked because best case scenario, you'd put an ad in a local newspaper and hope somebody would come buy one or two of them. But mm. what do you do with the rest of them? But of course, what it does mean is now there is this glorious legacy up there on the top floor at Funspot. And there are some great examples of original machines which have been in Funspot's custodianship for, for many, many years. Yeah, there are some games that have been here for decades. ACAM is its own entity. We... We have our own tax ID number. We have our own accountant. It's a completely separate entity. Mm. 
But Fun Spot has just been here for so long and is so popular that we just get lumped into that. Oh, look, it's the arcade museum at Fun Spot. And we kind of sometimes lose our identity. Gary, I was going to press you on the um, on the dividing line or the distinction between ACAM and Fun Spot. So can you can you speak more to that and how how ACAM is set up? Yeah, um, ACAM is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. I founded it in 98. We incorporated in 2002 as a nonprofit to save the history, preserve these games for the future. Mm. And I think basically due to the fact that I have been here since the dawn of time, I was <laughs> allowed to use the third floor space, which as most people know in anything that's retail based, the more floors you go up, the less popular that space becomes. <laughs> so, you know, it was, a it, it worked out great. You, it, there was an area that really, you know, a third floor of any retail establishment is not going to be the most popular. It's the mm. first and maybe the second. Mm. Third is kind of like the attic. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just worked. It worked well for me. Did you feel you had to make that decision out of a sense of urgency? Could you see some sort of commercial writing on the wall with the old video games? Is that why ACAM was set up? It kind of evolved from originally, I said I wanted to create sort of like a museum. And I talked with Bob and he's a big history buff as well. And he said, yeah, that sounds kind of like a neat idea. So I got rolling with that idea. And then all of a sudden it started becoming popular. And I'm like, wow, people really enjoy this. So that's when I decided that we needed to set up our own entity, get our own structure and talked with several different people. And they said, really, you know, you got to pursue a, a, a nonprofit museum because you're never going to make money with old games. And I said, yeah, you're not telling me anything I don't already know. <laughs> so that's, that's how it all came to be. Gary, from my own personal experience, when Tony and I visited, um, I believe it was the last, no, the year before last, and Tony walked me through the um, the side entrance, and uh, we made our way up, and it was that distinctive smell of dust burning off CRTs, and I'm like, oh my god! Uh, immediately, you know, those those senses are heightened, and the, those memories come flooding back, and 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 smell is the the one sense that really does take you back, and you must see some looks on people's faces as they walk up those stairs. The thing that gives me the greatest amount of joy is if I'm standing in the game room and somebody comes up the stairs who's never been here before. This big smile comes on their face and I just say to myself, that's what it's about. That makes it worthwhile. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was me. You know what I do remember distinctively is your monitor room and you've touched upon the, um, the maintenance um, in the early years, but I remember having a conversation with you about maintaining these CRTs and how harder and harder it's getting to keep things recapped and to keep the donations coming in. Is that still an issue for you? The CRT monitors are becoming an issue because nobody makes CRTs anymore. Of course. And in fact, during this pandemic, uh, Dana has been here with me and he has been going through all of our monitors. The ones I have stored in the monitor room, the ones I had stored in my shop. And then there's a outbuilding here on the property that I have more monitors in. And we're going to go start grabbing those because there's some that just the CRTs are shorted or there's such horrendous screen burn. There's nothing you can do with them. So we're saving the chassis, hoping someday we find a good tube with a bad chassis and then we can mate them back up and make another monitor. 
Uh, a lot of the collectors slash players are very particular about CRTs and games as opposed yes. to flat screen LCDs. And, you know, we, we do our darndest to make sure that we can keep CRTs in them. But, you know, once in a while, you got to do something to keep a game running. I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to put in words, but there's definitely the allure of the glow of the CRT that really just brings back everybody's memories. With regards to ACAM, Gary, of course, it's more than just a room full of 30-year-old video games. The work and reach of ACAM goes a lot wider um, than that. I wonder if you can just touch on that for us. Uh, what we're trying to do is save this history for future generations. And the thing I always wanted with ACAM was the ability for people to play these. We have a uh, nutting computer space on the floor, which was the first coin-operated video game that was available to arcade operators. And we let people play it. I don't know of anyone else who lets people play a computer space. If there is, somebody can fill me in. We, uh, we have several different levels that we do as far as the education program goes. I've had small classroom size groups of eight or 10 students. And what I usually do is tailor it to what the teacher wants. If they want to know history uh, and get a little bit of hands-on of, of how games evolved, we take that route. And all the way up to uh, groups like Champlain College, where they'll come here with 200 students. And then with a group that size, we're able to reach out to some of our contacts, um, developers back in the day, programmers, who will come here and actually speak to the students. Uh, and Steve Golson from General Computer Corporation, who did uh, Super Missile Attack and Miss Pac-Man, you know, it, it just allows them to interact with these people. And Mike Stuhler, who is our vice president, has also reached out and had more current game developers come as well to speak with students about what they're doing and what they look for as far as potential uh, employees. And of course, there are occasions where ACAM goes on the road, where you load up machines and uh, take them to external shows. There was a time that we did that, but I... I had to stop because it became very stressful for me personally when we used to go down to PAX East. And we'd go down there with two trucks, but you're entering a huge facility. And once your truck touches the loading dock, you can't touch your games. So all the crews there have to unload your truck and bring all your games to your room. And there was a lot of times we'd get up to our room, games would arrive, and the back doors caved in uh, or the bottoms broken out of it. And I finally said, you know, this is too much. And, and it was a lot of work. And then you, you would end up manning your display or your room for 16 hours a day because you'd have to get there before the show opened and stay there afterwards. And then at the end, get it all packed up and drive two hours back up here and then come in the next day and put everything back where it belongs, take it all off free play. And after a while, you just have to say what what is beneficial to us and what is a huge amount of work for, you know, not much benefit. Gary, you talk about the students coming to ACAM and I mean, imagine for a lot of these students, their experience of a classic arcade game is going to be through movies or TV shows such as Stranger Things, Ready Player One, etc. They're entering this environment which is evocative of that era and you indeed have had ACAM on the big screen in movies such as King of Kong. What does that feel like to see your work on the big screen? 
it's it's nice. It's rewarding to know that, you know, there are people out there that still appreciate this. Uh, there are a lot of, like when you just mentioned, the students who come here have probably never been in a an arcade as we know it. Uh, today's version of an arcade is... 99% of what's in there spits out tickets. You turn them in, you get prizes. Yeah, sure. And back in the, the late 70s to the mid 80s, it was video games and pinball machines. Yeah. And you played for getting a high score or, you know, you played against your friends. Oh, I can beat you. And, you know, there was no tickets rewarded at the end. So it, it's a completely different experience. And I do remember once when we were at, uh, PAX East, a gentleman pulled me aside and he said, I just want to thank you because I remember going to an arcade as a kid, but my son has never seen an arcade and thank you for doing this. That really meant a lot. Sometimes the little things mean the most. Going back to the film stuff, Gary, yeah. um, King of Kong in particular, mm -hmm. what are your memories of, um, of how all that happened and, um, and, and went down? Well, it was a very busy time when they were here filming because back then I was still running the tournament. Mm. So I had the tournament going on. I had that film crew here. There was another film crew here filming uh, Chasing Ghosts, I believe. Oh, yes, of course, yes. And then there were a couple of independent people here because back in those days, everybody was going to make a film. Mm. And I had experienced that so many times and so many projects never saw the light of day mm. that I really didn't think much of it because, you know, it, there's no guarantee that anything's ever going to get finalized and done. So uh, also, I believe the CBS morning show was here as well. Okay. So it was extremely hectic. Um, I remember being under the weather uh, for several days, but I still had to be here. So a little bit of that becomes a blur because, you know, I didn't feel well and I'm here and I'm working 14 hours a day and all I really wanted to do was just go to sleep. Um, I, uh, I stayed out of it. Mm. It's, uh, I, I tend to, in most situations, it's, it's the only way to be because some people, there, there are a lot of dynamic uh, yet incompatible personalities. Billy Mitchell. No opinion. Mm -hmm. No, I, I don't, I don't get into it because they're really, there's, there's too much drama, mm -hmm. too many conflicting personalities. So my preference is to just stay out of it and do my thing, keep the museum going, get old games going for people to enjoy mm -hmm. and stay out of the fray. On a positive note, um, I would say King of Kong especially kind of put Fun Spot on the map to modern collectors. Gary, would you say that's fair? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, we, we got a lot of coverage over the years for uh, the tournaments we did. Mm. And a little history on that, because I like to give people credit where credit is due. I was thinking of the idea of ACAM back in the fall of 1998. And in December of 1998, I was approached by the New Hampshire Pro video game team which at that time consisted of Ken Sweet, Jen Moore, and Corey Sawyer. They approached me in December and they said, you know, we'd like to come and practice. So I said to them, you know, I said, it's kind of interesting that you brought this up because we used to do tournaments ages ago and then they just kind of fizzled away. So if I put together like a tournament again on the old games that are upstairs, do you think that would interest anyone? And they were like, yeah, I think that would be really interesting. 
So that's eventually what evolved into the first tournament we did in May of 1999. And I did them through 2014, uh, and then it just, it became too much. Gary, um, one of the things that you do on the main floor of ACAM is kind of limit the machines up to kind of the late 80s. Yes, there's some exceptions to that. And I thought one of the reasons is that it was when the Street Fighter games were becoming popular and you said kind of wanted to stop it there because I thought games were getting perhaps a bit violent. I'm interested in that because video games often get blamed for violence. Do you ever feel you have to apologise for running an arcade? No, not really. Um, I When I originally set up ACAM, I remembered the arcade, I guess, as the way I remembered it. And that was every game was either puzzle-based, space-based, fantasy-based. And it, it was there wasn't really any sort of like the object of the game was to beat the snot out of the other player. So I, I noticed that change and, and nothing against it because, you know, different boats for different folks or whatever. And so when I picked a date for the arcade museum, that was about it. It was about like 1988, 89. Um, I think the newest thing over there is probably uh, Keith Apicari's Neo Geo. <laughs> well, that has a special place there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, the, it's not as if you don't have games there that were controversial. Um, you've got a death race there, which, of course, back in the 70s, caused a lot of controversy. Tell us about how you acquired that machine. That uh, was an eBay find. And I had been looking for one because they were, at the time, pretty difficult to find one. And it still is. So this one popped up on eBay. And I bought it. They had it shipped here. And it arrived, like, probably a day before our tournament was going to start. And the truck dropped it off right outside uh, on the sidewalk here. And it was all wrapped, strapped to a pallet. And... Of course, I had only seen it in pictures, and I thought, I wonder if we can get this running for the tournament. This would be great. So we went outside. We're unwrapping it and unwrapping it and unwrapping it, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, what is that smell? <laughs> and, you know, you, you talk about game smells. There's a couple of different categories they fall into. Um, one is, like, damp dungeon. That, I don't know, it's kind of like a combination of mold... <laughs> wet rocks and dirt um this had that and then there's there's what i call the mouse condominium and pretty much any arcade game if you put it in storage and you don't seal up every single hole on it it becomes a mouse condominium and they love to build nests up in the marquees Gary, if uh, if you ever the arcade business doesn't work out for you, there's definitely a career in the perfume business. Um, you've um, you've talked about ACAM, of course, being a, a museum. And um, if you had to give someone a tour around that museum, mm-hmm. can you perhaps pick out perhaps you know three or four machines that you would take them over to and say you need to see this? Uh, of course, yeah. I I've actually had people do that, you know, hey, give me like a highlights here. So I'll bring them through. And of course, we always stop at computer space where video games began. And I often tell people that and they'll say, well, I thought Pong was the first video game. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, Pong was probably the first successful one. And that's what everyone remembers. But computer space was the first one that an arcade operator could say, you know, go to their distributorship and buy for their arcade. And then we, uh, we, of course, will stop at Pong uh, because that's the one everybody remembers. 
uh, Pong really kind of put video games on the map. And I also explained to people that early video games such as Computer Space and Pong don't have traditional arcade monitors in them. Uh, they were retrofitted television sets. Um, that's another thing that young people find interesting is the portable television. We stop at those two. Then we go and we look at Death Race and I explain really how controversial that game was, even though if you released it today, it would be, you know, nothing. You know, so we hit those three. Uh, people always get a big kick out of Chiller. Yes. Which was uh, another family-friendly game from our friends at uh, Exidy. Yeah, they seem to specialize in controversy. Yeah. Um, I'm interested that you seem to make sure you have a mix of games that we all remember, like Space Invaders and Defender and Pac-Man. But you also make sure you get some oddities in, like the wonderful Cheeky Mouse, a favorite of mine. Have you got a particular favorite in the collection, Gary? You know, it's funny because I get asked that question quite frequently. I used to play Crazy Climber and I liked Alpine Ski. And then over the years, I slowly found myself not playing anymore. And what became most enjoyable for me was piecing together cabinets for other people to enjoy. So I, I find myself not playing as much, but it seems like my time mostly is spent resurrecting things from the dead or hunting down of, of missing pieces. What are the games which are constantly breaking down, Gary? Any of them that are old? Yes, uh, but do any, do any particular machines stand out as, oh man, it's gone again? So, uh, color vectors. Yes. Um, those are a nice headache to have, um, especially when you have more than one and yeah, it's that and anything now, like I said, it, jokingly, but is true things that are old. And we were joking today about, uh, our gunfight game and how anytime you move it, you move it 10 feet, put it somewhere else, plug it back in. It doesn't work. It's like, oh, this is awesome. This thing is like jinxed, but. Yeah, it's, you know, they were never designed to do what we're doing with them. Right. They were built for a purpose, and that was to put in an arcade, make money for six months to a year, and then you got rid of it because your salesman came in with the next great game you were going to buy. So, you know, the fact that 40 years later, we're still running stuff that was, I guess, for all intents and purposes, designed to run for a year or two. People will, will say to me, oh, you know, that didn't work and this isn't right. And I, I go over and I try to get as much of those small calls that I can. But then I say to them, I said, you know, these things are old. And they're like, yeah, but you know, you can, you can, you can bulletproof it. That's my favorite one, bulletproof. And, and I said, you know what? Do you ever rent a car? Like you go to Hertz or Avis and you rent a car. There's a reason why they don't hand you keys to an 82 Chevette. Do you find yourself... Um getting called out to service other machines at Funspot rather than just at ACAM? I pretty much get called to fix most anything that's broken. Um, it runs the gamut of, hey, the pizza oven doesn't work. Right. To, you know, there's a sink with a broken faucet. I'm all over the map. It's, it's never the same thing twice. Do you, do you not find that a little stressful? Um, one minute you're working on a, on, on a monitor or a PCB, and then you kind of have to nip off and um, fix said pizza oven? Yeah, yeah, it does. But you know what? It's, it's, the, it's the reality that it is. ACAM's going through a bit of a tough time at the moment. Is there anything that 
we and our listeners can do to help? This, uh, the whole coronavirus pandemic has really thrown a monkey wrench in the program. Uh, we used to run our bingo game every week, and that is where the majority of our funds came from. We have 270 machines on the floor here. I have probably another 200 in storage that I have to pay for. So there were a lot of sleepless nights and I talked with some of my volunteers and they're like, you got to start a GoFundMe charity. And I usually try to be as self-sufficient as possible, but there was no way to do that. So we set up our GoFundMe charity, which you can find on our website, which is classicarcademuseum.org, or you can find it on our Facebook page or our Twitter or Instagram. And that's what we did. We set the goal for $25,000. I was looking to cover some of our expenses for several months because I had no idea what was going on. And so far, we've raised just over $18,000 of the 25000 we were set for our goal. Well, that shows how much love there is for your wonderful place. We are so grateful that, especially during such a horrible time, that people are willing to help us out. It's, it's like heartwarming it, to me. I mean, this is, this is my passion. This is what I do. This is, this is my child. You've devoted, you know, all of your working life to FunSpot and now ACAM. Can you put into words what it means to you? I, you know, I was always the, uh, in, in school, uh, grade school and, and such, you know, you'd go, go on a field trip to a museum and there was always a group of kids that would roll their eyes and be like, oh, we're going to a museum. I was always that kid that was like, oh, wow, this is going to be fun. And I always thought that was like great that you would go somewhere and, you know, there were always these very elaborate dioramas and, and such that I would always think how much time was put into that. I mean, I was probably a really strange kid, but I enjoyed that. And that is, you know, more and more as we progress here is, is the direction I would like to take, getting into more static displays, things that people can see. And especially when I have the smaller groups here, I'll, I'll dig out stuff that I know kids have never seen. Um, laser disc. What kid knows what a laser disc is? <laughs> you know, they, they get it and it's like a giant compact disc if they even know what that is anymore. So that's the things that drives me and what's, what makes me the happiest. Gary, I just want to say thank you for creating a place which I remember walking up those stairs for the first time to ACAM and it was like ascending to arcade heaven. So thanks for all your hard work in creating and maintaining that and thanks for talking to us. Oh, thank you so much. That Wow. That, that, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It really has. We look forward so much to actually being able to get back on an aeroplane and come and visit you once this uh, COVID-19 pandemic has uh, hopefully subsided. I would love to see you guys as well. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. There's an awful lot of synergy between what you're doing there with ACAM and uh, what we're doing on the podcast. So um, thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank you.